I make one joke about being a Time Lord, and our entire schedule goes wibbly-wobbly-timey-wimey. This is The Mouse Podcast, Episode 5, for January 2018. I'm your host, Bowen Volweather. This week, we joined Allie Jensen, Ann McDonald, and Jason C. McDonald as they conclude our three-part discussion about character development in stories. Later, I'll be joining Jason C. McDonald as we discuss project management and uncertainty from a rather unusual perspective. Mousepaw Media is powered by open source software like Claim, a powerful C and C++ compiler by LLVM, built on a clean and modern code base. For more information, visit clang.llvm.org. That's C-L-A-N-G dot L-L-V-M dot O-R-G. Alright, so we're back discussing characters again. This is the villain episode. (laughs) Thank you very much, Jason, and thank you, Annie, for joining us here as well. Sure thing. Alright, so speaking about villains, because we've already talked a whole lot about good guys and protagonists, secondary characters, all the above, but how do we keep a good antagonist realistic? No antagonist. Antagonist. Well, moment of disclaimer, um, get rid of the the Bond villains. Um, If your villain in the story is stroking a cat describing the evil plot as (laughs) as the hero moves slowly down the conveyor belt towards the chomping jaws of death, um... Rework the character. Well, this one series, and I'm not going to say what it is, but every single crook at the end, when they're caught and they're on, they're on their way to the police car, spill their guts about everything. They don't care. That's not realistic. No, definitely it's just not. Not, not going to happen. Um, antagonists are are interesting. They don't necessarily have to be murderers or thieves. Uh, they can just be your annoying neighbor. That's true. And actually, although I do love a good murder mystery, I get tired of that being the only thing being out there. So what makes the annoying neighbor a good antagonist? Well, if you're trying to grow a, um, a nice uh, garden and you have a neighbor who's insisting on growing these vines up the fence that keep crawling over and choking your... your um, vegetables or your fruit or whatever it is you know it's, it's an annoyance so you know in that that case they're antagonistic they're keeping the main character and the story from their goal whatever that goal may be major or minor and and you know, this is the third podcast in a row where i've mentioned this but you know we're talking about destabilizing the world of the character because every story you have to destabilize the character and so the villain is a very good way or the antagonist to use the proper term is a very good way of completely um destabilizing that character's world in a way that a secondary character or a friend usually can't because a friend won't usually do a major injury or just be completely i mean they can you can have a you can have a friend temporarily be an antagonist but in general, you have to have someone who doesn't like the character, who doesn't care about the character's feelings or their goal um, to just throw a wrench in the works. Like uh, in Horseradish Creek Gang, 
Elsie's having to deal with a wannabe cousin, and I'm not going to go into detail about that, but Vervain Othello, he calls him Vervi, and his sister Nasturtia is known as Nasty for a very good reason. Um, neither one of them are very personable. They're very self-centered and very prickly. and Class A snobs. Yes, they, they are, and they, they like to, you know, um, antagonize everybody. But then we have the flat tail boys. They are antagonistic. I mean, uh, there isn't a babysitter around that, that doesn't know them and um, uh, quail at the thought of having to wrestle those two or the, those, the, four. The, those four yeah the two sets of twins you know try to having one flat tail boy is bad enough you know but to have four of them at one time they're going every which way and you don't know what's going to happen next so they're antagonistic but they're but they, they don't have any major plots they're just undisciplined little brats so you you have that but then you have some other individuals that are adults that have their own agenda and the agenda is not that which will be in the best interest of the people in the town so they come out and I'm not going to spoil that but the boys have to find out who they are and what they're up to but then you have the characters who are the recurring figures in the story and you can't really ever get rid of them and they've they've graduated from annoyance to thorn in the flesh and one of them is a character named jessica who was originally created to be one of the protagonists that's one of the most delicious sources of antagonists is you design one to be a protag and then they turn out to be a yeah Pain but do know, we designed, tail. we didn't ask the boys anything about her. And as we were getting into Friend or Foe, writing that book, we found out that Jessica was nothing like we imagined her to be. She was the total opposite. And if we had bothered to talk to the boys about it, they would have told us. But no, we were trying to go. We were going to craft this character yeah the, the idea that we write the books is the most ridiculous thing we, authors rarely write the we rarely invent the world we just write it down as it shows up that's one of the fun things about this is because we're learning the story almost at the same pace as the reader is i mean i've written two noah clue stories where i thought i knew who done it I was convinced I knew the solution, and then I get to the end and I find out, no, I got that wrong. Actually, it was this solution over here, and then I think, okay, well, I've got to go back and rework that into drop the clues, and I go back through and go, oh, no, the clues were already there. I should have... When you're getting outsmarted by your own mystery novel, that's a little bit of an alarming situation. Well, I want to read a passage from uh, Friend or Foe. This introduces one of the antagonists um, and uh, some of the other secondary characters, but it gives it, it sets things up for what's going to happen later on in the book, um, actually in the chapter following this one. Um, anyway, this is from Friend or Foe. Samir Mapache sidled over to Saneo. His coarse gray head fur waved in the light breeze. Sweat glistened in his black furry mask. Why wait for the dragons? We're nimble enough to at least clear the books and papers from the trees. There might even be some Inkandari stones hidden in there. That would be great. 
Several folk didn't have the money to replace the expensive stones that provided electrical power to their homes and businesses. Each stone had to be hand cut from the quarry in the Dragon Lair Mountains. Sunil just hoped he could remember Ms. Bristlewhisker's address, since it would be etched into the opaque surface of her power stone. I say we stay out of there, Sammy. Inkandari stones are nothing to mess with. Taisha Lupuerte's feline features mocked the boys. She smirked as she flipped her long auburn braids back over her shoulders and crossed her sleek, athletic arms. Sammy's brown eyes twinkled in amusement. He snickered. Inkandari stones aren't dangerous on their own. Someone obviously slept through science class this past spring. Taisha's spotted fur bristled. You're such a know-it-all, she hissed through her sharp fangs while her amber eyes glowed with anger. Her warrior Scafali heritage couldn't be denied. Don't start, you two. Frankly, Sineo despised the constant arguments between them. They behave more like spoiled young children instead of ten-year-olds. I'm just stating the obvious, Sammy shrugged. Somebody has to. Whatever. Sineo waved his arms in defeat and tuned them out. Perhaps he could locate another path along the creek bed that they could use until help arrived. As he searched around for an opening of some sort, movement up ahead caught his attention. Sammy's identical twin had somehow made his way to the center of the twisted trees. Sineo glanced back at their supervisor. Had Elsie's grandmother seen him? Hey guys, look what I found, Freddie hollered. It looks like a huge fire safe. Grandma Poppy looked up with a start. In the name of all that is green and good, have you lost your mind, child? Get out of there immediately. So we, we get a chance to see a few different characters there. You know, we have Sammy and Freddy, who are um, identical twins and quite mischievous, but protagonists. And then we meet their foil, Taisha, who is... Um, not mischievous, but not just, easy to get along with. No, very, very bossy. She wants her own way. And we, we see her throughout the series. And in case anyone's wondering, don't get the idea that we made all the girls villains. I mean, we have we have Violet. Oh, who Violet is, is such a sweetheart. She's such a, she, she's, and, she's, and she's spunky, too. Yeah. So, and there's Grandma Poppy and lots of other wonderful female characters. Maisha, Shanidri's best friend, who's considerably more down to earth. Yeah, Maisha's also... oldest sister. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so it, it's funny to see, it's, it's almost an inversion of the of Sineo and Shanidri's relationship because we have Shanidri who's kind of acting like something of an antagonist by this point. She's being the annoying older sister. She's good at heart. It's just she's going through some tough times. And then you have Taisha who's just got a chip on her shoulder Vis-a-vis her older sister, who is very generous and very caring. so Which does bring to mind, because these people act differently for a reason. But what gives a villain a good motive? Why is a villain a villain? Well, villains actually see themselves as the good guys. They, they do. And I think it's important to remember every single character, every character is going to see themselves as the hero of their story, of the story. That's why it's important to know who your main characters are, because believe me, all the rest will try to horn in on that role. And it's it's happened. We've had we've had main characters switch sometimes. But villains are no exception. They believe that they're the hero. And you won't find in real life, uh, except in a really rare situation involving mental illness, you will not find people who are evil, know they know they're evil, and celebrate the fact. No villain believes they're the villain. And you know, to refer back to 
My Little Pony Friendship is Magic, which we were talking about in the last podcast, that's one of the things that makes that show very unique. All of the villains have a very specific reason to do what they're doing. None of them are claiming evil and are proud of the fact they think that they're justified in whatever they're doing. And they have a backstory and they have a reason. And when you tap into that, it gives you some degree of empathy for the villain, even while you don't approve of their actions. And it provides a mechanic by which some of them can become reformed. Some of them can choose a different path and in a very realistic way. And others don't want a different path. They are convinced they're right and are determined to stick it out to the bitter end. Yeah, some of them learn the hard way. Some of them don't learn at all. That's that's true. A good, like, going to My Little Pony for a little bit, that reminds me of Discord and Tirak and the differences between the two. It was already established that Discord was a villain at first, and, they, and he was in prison in stone, he was released, and then he got back into his stone prison. Um, but later, I forget how he came back. They brought him. They oh, brought him right, back. Celestia they wanted him, him reformed. That's right. And so wanted him was, to have a chance to reform. And so he was. He was going along with it. And and I'll let the we'll let the the viewers watch that story to find out that whole thing. But he trips up and he he majorly screws up when it comes to another vi- villain, Tyrek. And he has to learn a lesson the hard way, but. It's believable how he falls, and it's believable how he comes back. Well, one of the important things about antagonists is that they are the backdrop um, against which the main characters shine. Um, We have in Mayathos Island Mystery, something happens, and Sineo has to make a decision to offer grace and mercy to someone who does not deserve it. But he does it because he believes this person could make different choices and he doesn't want to label him and take away the opportunity for this person to to grow. Um, however, um, in friend or foe, there are individuals that will not change and decisions have to be made to cut them out because they cannot continue in relationship without bringing harm to to other individuals. Another thing that I really liked about the Horse Riders Creek Gang series is how you do have them facing people and situations that are quite difficult and none of them would have been possible without some form of antagonist or something going awry. But um, it also changes the protagonists. Like, not only do you see where they're at at that point, like, do they choose to get mad at this person or not? Do they choose to contain themselves or not? But later it affects their decisions and it helps them grow up a bit. Um, When Tineo would have at first just spoken his mind and made more of a mess than what he should have, later on in the series, he chooses to keep his mouth shut, even if he doesn't really like what's going on. Not because, just for the sake of keeping the peace. Moving over to um, Daisy and Jack, which is another of the uh, series I, I work on. Um, there's a couple of characters in that who are examples of the fact that a villain doesn't, an antagonist, doesn't always have to be plotting. They don't always have to uh, be seeking to stand directly in the way of 
the character because all the examples we've had previously, um, the, the flat tail boys and they're determined to run rampant over their, over their babysitters and, um, teachers. Yeah. Jessica, who, <laughs> Jessica, who, you know, she has her motives, which will be revealed in the series and Taisha who wants her own way. And, you have all these all these individuals that they want something and they're going to grab it no matter who they have to step on. But you can also have antagonists who aren't really reaching for anything and they're not directly preventing the character, the main character, from reaching for it either. They're just... Their personality just grates. They live, for whatever reason, to be irritating and and there's there's a couple examples of that in daisy and jackie you have rita who thinks she is the best thing ever and loves rubbing daisy's face and the fact that well i compete in the rodeo circuit and then you have sparkle the cat who just he's a he's a cat he's, a cat. he's proud of being a cat <laughs> and he will wend his way under your skin and just irritate you for the sheer joy of getting a rise one of the important things um, to note is that even your secondary characters, your protag, the antagonist, you need to know who these individuals are. And we have a characterization sheet that we mentioned in our um, June podcast um, that goes into questions and details about your character besides just the physical, but their background. Why do they do the things they do? You know, uh, Jessica's father abandoned the family. She's got a chip on her shoulder and she chooses to act out in a certain way. Uh, the flat tail boys have reasons behind what they are doing. Their mother being a major one. <laughs> yeah, uh, Miss Drama Queen. Um, yeah, and then um, LC's family to find out, you know, that, that his grandfather is, is far worse than anybody had anticipated. And then as they're finding out the hidden story of Watercrest Village and the means, um, the, the depths that his grandfather was willing to go to to rewrite village history in order to make things the way he perceived them to be. Um, that's a major thing for LC, but then you have Ravain Othello and Nasturtium who are, are, their parents are having them come alongside and do these evil things because that's, that's what they, they're, they're supposed to do. That's how they get, um, acceptance from the adults is by doing bad things. And then you have their older sister, Violet, who doesn't like doing bad things. And if she doesn't do them, then she's harmed. So she's, you know, she's got choices that she has to make, and this comes out in Friend or Foe, where she has to take a huge risk to expose what's going on. Um, and then we also have um, an unexpected uh, visitor that it, it shows up, and they're having to protect this this individual with, without revealing that this, this individual is there. there yeah. You know, just like because someone could harm you know, this individual and then bring much more disaster on the town. So, you know, there, there's all this, this stuff, but, you know, there, there are explanations and you have to know what that is when you're writing, when you have an antagonist. It can't be just because they feel like it. Why do we do the things we do? Everything that we do, every decision that we make comes from somewhere in our past. 
uh, vow or judgment, expectation. You know, psychology is one of my major areas of interest. I would say most of my stories are psychology driven. Um, and that's the main reason I like writing is I like taking a personality type, mixing with another personality type, putting into a situation and, and watching what happens. There's, there's, you know, we talk about chemistry with characters and, and I think that's a very apt comparison because it's like chemistry. You're mixing <laughs> these things together and seeing what happens. Um, on the note of knowing motivation, Rita, the, the horse down the road in, in Daisy and Jack, she... She doesn't feel like her relationship with her owner is the same as what Daisy has with Ardell. And she feels like she's inferior in some way. And I haven't fully figured that out because I'm very early in writing the series. She's only appeared a couple of times. But she feels very much inferior to Daisy. And so she has to make herself feel better uh, versus this, this working horse by bragging about oh look at all my awards and all my medals and you know i've i've won in, in, in barrel racing and all these circuits and i am so much better than you because really what she's feeling is i'm not better than you and i have to inflate myself to feel superior so that i don't have to think about how i'm not who i want to be and you can ex- you can um express that through the body language even of the the horses um, other characters, their body language, their dialogue, words that they choose to use. Um, we have all been in situations where somebody will use a word that has a double meaning for us, especially like in family context, to know that um, there, there are hidden meanings. You know, So if you see somebody ha- having a conversation and a certain word is used and you notice a person reacting to this somewhat benign word then you you can tell that there's something else there's there's a different meaning for that person where's our where's the characterization sheet that is uh, um, mousepawmedia.com um, you go to the resources tab and uh, writing and what I what I recommend is you know you download it and put more spaces and we have uh, character sheets for each of the major characters and even the secondary ones you know you fill that out uh, so you know why they're doing things, but also you can keep their eye color, their hair color, fur color, whatever, whatever you're writing. Keep all the physical characteristics um, the same for the character throughout the book or the series. It's very important to keep all those attributes together and consistent because I know that I've read a few books where if you start out with green eyes and then they have blue eyes later, that's kind of irksome. I mean, especially if it wasn't a plot point, then it's just, you know, it was careless writing and it breaks your world. Uh, And speaking about the dialogue as well, how do we keep the dialogue realistic? It has to be consistent with the character's personality. Dialogue is one of my one of my favorite things to to play with. I, I find that I can express far more in a story out of just what the characters are saying, and usually my favorite characters in a given story are defined by their dialogue. Um, you know, talking about antagonists and dialogue, um, two of my favorite antagonists, and I'm, and just because they're an antagonist in a story, of course, it doesn't necessarily mean they're the perpetrator of a crime like we talked about, but. Two of my favorite antagonists um, in, in Noah Clue. One is a psychologist by the name of Dr. Orchard. And 
I, I had studied psychology in college, so I kind of based him off of um, a lot of the stranger ideas of Freudian psychology and just this really offbeat character who has this calm, level, even tone that he's just, he's one of those people that is so calm, you really want to do him harm because <laughs> you know that he's it, it's, it's patronizing. Yeah. And he talks down to you, but in a way that you can never say you're talking down to me because he's just, he's always so, you know, well, he's quoting his, his psychology hurt people hurt people and of course Noah and Dee are getting really irritated by this guy and you actually met this guy like two two three years after after I wrote story. him I run into this guy and I'm like you, you this guy is exactly like Dr. Orchard this is so weird and he was a psychologist it's like these people are real but my other favorite um antagonist was this character named Laura Godfrey in uh in uh uh, how to get murdered in three easy steps and she's the personal assistant to the guy that got killed and she views herself as so superior to everyone else she it feels like everything she says is an insult is a personal attack and she does it almost imperceptibly but you just get she's got a little hook in everything she says and it, it is so much fun to write this dialogue because People use their words in so many different ways, and how a character uses their words says a lot. Laura likes putting people down to make herself feel better, very similar to the character of Rita. And so she talks down to everyone because it gives her a thrill that she can insult people to their face. With a smile and, on her face. And never really, you can never really call her on it. Yeah, because she's doing it with such a, a calm tone with the of such a nice look on her face and you just want to reach out and slap her <laughs> yeah we've all known those people we've come across them every once in a while in our lifetime and it that type of dialogue is really irksome and it's really really good for an antagonist and so it's just kind of almost therapeutic to read about an antagonist in a book and that does the same thing because like, I'm not crazy. Yes, it does happen. Exactly. <laughs> now, speaking about murder mysteries and everything like that, or, and other mysteries as well, uh, and dialogue on top of that, dialogue is a really important and crucial part of a book, especially when characters are interacting. Now, some people use it too much for exposition. It's bland. You know, you can tell when somebody is just conveniently contriving dialogue to put stuff in. That's the lazy way to do it. The um, expert way to do it is you want to drop bits and pieces here and there. Just kind of, you know, um, this thing happened some time ago, you know, in page two or three, and then you're going down and, and the person, nobody reveals everything to you off the bat. They're not going to give you their whole life. Well, most of them won't. We did have one woman who did give us her life history in half an hour when we went to pick up something. But most people don't do that. Um, I think she's going to end up in another book. Probably. Yeah, because she's such a unique personality, but most people don't just go and give you everything. You get bits and pieces. You get you get hints here and there, um, things that they say, things that they do, the way their body language is, um, you know, the way they're 
when you're talking to somebody and they keep looking away from you instead of looking you in the eye, you and can it, tell something about them. It adds an element of mystery to every story, whether it's a mystery or not, because I think that's one of the fun things about, about holding back some information is because it, it adds a sense of mystery to the story. Why does, um, why does Elsie always carry his satchel with him? Yeah. Or why... Why does Digger always respond to situations with objectivity? What what drives that? Or or why does Plymouth like making all of the rest of the hens fly into a panic? You know, so it leaves these little these little hints, and you're trying to solve the mystery of the character. Um, in talking about murder mysteries, that's ultimately why Agatha Christie is as popular as she is. People have tried to imitate her improperly by creating similar uh, murder mystery plots, but it's not the murder itself that makes Agatha Christie's story so interesting. It is, as Perot often says, using the little gray cells. You're solving every little detail there. Why did this person say that? Why is this person not liking this person? And it's, it's understanding the entire social dynamic and putting it together. You don't have to kill somebody to create a mystery. It's interesting just watching people and figuring out what makes them tick. I have to bring up something, um, a, a character interaction. Sineo in Friend or Foe encounters a dragon prince who is trying to stay undercover. He left home for a reason. He doesn't want anybody to realize who he is, but the the physical characteristics between him and his father are just so on spot. You, you can't, I mean, he's a different, he's got different scale colors, big whoop. He looks exactly like his dad. And he is grumpy as all get out. And Sineo encounters him and just because Sineo is who he is, he, he builds a rapport with this, this dragon um, and wins his respect just because he's, he's willing to take, uh, to listen to the dragon, uh, to keep his secret, but also to let him know, I'm not stupid. You know, love that. And you, you get that through the dialogue and, and the interaction between them when, you know, Sineo starts walking and he says, you know, it might be better for you to fly. And, and, and the dragon's like, I don't give rides. He goes, I don't remember asking for one. You know, just the... The, the back and the back forth. And, forth. and that's, yeah, that's what... His own, keeps, he, he, he's grown from the first book to the second book where he's actually able to um, have an interaction with the prince because Sineo in his own culture is a prince not in you know not in the title but you know his position within the tribe so he knows how things go and he knows how uncomfortable things can get but he's able to express himself in a way so that the dragon who seems to be antagonistic Turns out to be something else later and, on. And that's the beauty of dialogue. That's where the dialogue really is. Dialogue is found in the space between the two speakers. That is where dialogue really is. It's how does this person react to what the other person said and how do they respond? That's ultimately what makes dialogue realistic. It's both people. Please don't do monologuing villains. They don't monologue. People don't do this. <laughs> the, we Dialogue. If you've got a character monologuing, you're trying to cover way too much in the story. 
um, through it. Or like Scooby-Doo at the end right. of it. I yeah. would have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for those stupid kids. Meddling kids. meddling <laughs> <laughs> kids. Anyway, listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Annie and Jason, thank you so much for joining me in this podcast. And thank you all for this wonderful dialogue, spread the monologue. Thank you for listening about villains and how interesting they can be. And have a good one. If you're an open source developer, there's never been a better time to join in at Mousepaw Media. This quarter, we are developing the first draft of the RatScript language parser, as well as the communication protocol between the Inari graphics engine and the Lightrift Animation Studio tool. If you're interested in getting involved, check out mousepawmedia.com forward slash developers. Polyp 1.1 is scheduled for release this March and is set to feature the first stable release of OneString, a new C++ string class supporting full Unicode support and compatibility with the traditional standard string class. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Twitter as MousePawMedia. Our temporary account restriction is a Twitter glitch that's been affecting us for over a year. We can also be found on Google+, GitHub, and LinkedIn as MousePawMedia, and on YouTube as MousePawGames. IRC lovers can find us on the Freedom Network on the Hash Mousepaw Media channel. I'm Bowen Holweiler, second assistant lead developer at Mousepaw Media, and I'm here talking with lead developer Jason C. McDonald about project management. How's it going, Jason? It's going pretty good. Um, this is going to be interesting. Uh editing later i always say that but uh, you're cutting out every couple of seconds so that's, that's oh, fun. fantastic okay <laughs> that's all right it happens that's 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 technology in a nutshell uh but uh, yeah i'm doing i'm doing pretty good uh getting over bronchitis if i sound stuffy to anybody but uh uh other than that you know actually doing actually doing pretty good i discovered for for reasons completely irrelevant to anything that uh, when i have a cold i'm capable of singing really deep bass <laughs> I wonder why that is. That's... Yeah, I can only do it That's when I have a cold, which has fascinating implications to performance. Yeah, I'm 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 singing bass tonight, so I need you to sneeze on me. <laughs> I've got a song. I need some low notes. Someone get me sick. Absolutely, it's just that lower that lower register for some reason has more of a. I'm not going to try to do it on the podcast, but I can kind of do the part of the Misty Mountains thing from The Hobbit. So. <laughs> 2017 was kind of a strange year for us. Uh, it's being called around the company as the year that nothing happened. Zip. Yeah. Uh, how many people did we lose at some point or the other? It's kind of a complicated count, surprisingly, because, um, and I do have to qualify this, by the way, that content dev was cooking for 2017. Uh, but programming is just, it just was dead. Um, we lost, um, well, it depends on your definition of lost. We lost some people for part of the year and we lost some people for all of the year. Um, uh, anyone who's been listening to this podcast for a while will probably remember back, um, around su- the end of summer, us talking about, uh, the great academic leave of, uh, 2017 and how everybody vanished at the same moment. Uh, that was the time you came on, Bo. And so you were, you and I were basically working alone. And then uh, everyone came back, and then I actually had to move, uh, kind of an emergency move in August, so I was out for two months. 
Um, and then Jarek had to go around that same time point, and Sergio had to go again, and Nate had to go, and Fox was still gone. And Jaime, um, one of our open source contributors in, um, in Mexico, he uh, got hit with five hurricanes, three earthquakes, and a robbery to boot. And uh, so he was gone for the rest of the year. So by the time we all uh, got back together, it was December, and we're going, this is what just <laughs> happened. Yeah, so I think, is it safe to say that everyone at some point was gone? Uh, except with the possible exception of you, because I don't really count uh, midterms or finals as being out per se. Um, you know, you're gone for a week and then you're right back into it. Uh, so yeah, cool. I think you, I think you were the only person that actually was here for the whole the whole thing. <laughs> hey guys, I'm still here. I, I think I've only been in a handful of meetings with everyone at this point. Still, yeah. Once upon a time, that that happened on a regular basis, and then and then I like I mentioned at the at the opening of this broadcast i hear i start making jokes about being a time lord and uh, the entire schedule goes crazy because we all come back in in january and we have had the thursday at 6 p.m department meeting time for almost three years and uh with with just a handful of exceptions suddenly that didn't work nobody could make it to that meeting suddenly and it was just the weirdest phenomenon and then it's a matter of trying to find times that everybody can can meet and no one's available on Thursday and some people are available Friday evening, but other people aren't. Some people work days, some people work nights, some people are wide open, some people don't have any time. And we finally managed to get a Saturday at 7 meeting time nailed down, which by an absolute miracle also works for our open source contributors. So, yay. Um <laughs> But it was just it was a it was just a weird phenomenon. We spent two weeks trying to figure out how we could even overlap because uh, our schedules all changed um, in the past, in like the first three weeks of the year. Yeah, it it was crazy. Um, anyway, though this this prompted you to write an article about the way that you approach project management. Yeah, yeah, it's actually an article on uh, Dev Two called Gallifreyan. Software project management, which is of course a Whovian reference. Um, we used to we used to joke that uh, one of the other developers was uh, uh, most likely among us to be a time lord, and then we realized recently that no, I'm I'm probably the time lord on account <laughs> of I just have a really weird I have a really weird way of looking at time, and I'm, I I won't go into some of my bizarre multidimensional theories um i have physics friends for that but um it's an interesting thing leading a project like this when when you don't view time primarily as linear i mean i can view time as linear but it's not the only way i look at it and um that turns out to be a really good thing because uh as evidenced by 2017 time doesn't necessarily behave in a very orderly fashion for us so <laughs> Being able to look at it from a different different angle was kind of helpful. So I started putting uh, some thoughts on a paper on how I how I approach project management, and that you know turned into this uh, very uh, Hoovian article. It's definitely very interesting. Um, one of the main points of the article is that you base your planning around this idea of flux. Could you explain that? Yeah, flux is uh, my word for. Um, uncertainty. And there's a lot of uncertainty in software project management. Um, one of the books that we 
that everyone at the company reads is called Dreaming in Code by Scott Rosenberg. And it's actually the book that got me into this field to begin with. And uh, in it, there's a lot of discussion about why software projects don't seem to follow basic rules, basic laws of, of time and, and management techniques that work for everything else. Why is it that building, a, building software is nothing like building a car or building a bridge? I think ultimately the problem is because we don't speak the same language as computers. Computers only think in zeros and ones, and uh, we don't. No matter how much we try, we're still doing the translation in our head. We're still having to get human thought into computer thought. And anytime you have translation, you have uncertainty. Actually, that reminds me, there was a, there was a, st a true story about... Um, when uh, Gerber baby food started being sold in Africa, uh, what they did not know, what the marketing people did not know, is that all the food uh, in that country, because a lot of people cannot read even their native language, all the food is labeled with a picture showing what it contains. So when they first came out with the baby food in Africa, with the picture of the baby on it, this did not go over very well. <laughs> So they had to clarify this by changing the logo. They couldn't put the logo on the food anymore. They had to put what it was. Um, so stuff does not translate very well. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty. You don't know what the message is going to mean when you put it into this different uh, context. Um, similarly, my our, our friend Jaime brought up to me when they first started selling baby oil in Mexico, they, they called it uh, Aceite de Bebe which um, means uh, oil of baby. Uh, so same kind of problem. And what what they needed uh, was acite del, not acite del, acite, uh, acite por bebe, which is oil for baby. Oh, okay. Translation always brings us uncertainty is my point. And we're trying to get human thought into the computer. And when we're trying to do that, that's where all of this wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff comes from is that is that things don't translate well. Compu the computer is the single dumbest thing you will ever encounter in your life. You have to explain everything to it in the most minute scientific detail, or it won't know what on earth you're talking about. And if you miss one step in this, it's going to behave in really weird ways, because it. this is the problem with translation. Neither party knows, ultimately, what the other party is understanding. And so it's a process of tell the computer to do X, computer does Y, and then you have to figure out why it did Y and how to make it do X instead. Uh, so that's, that's why this whole thing becomes uncertain. And so ultimately then I figured what project management comes down to is learning to anticipate and manage this uncertainty and try and limit just how much of it you actually allow into the project. Because you're always going to have some. But you need to figure out where it's going to crop in and how to keep it at bay. So, uh, how do you how do you go about finding sources of flux? Because from my perspective, as someone who works under you, I see projects that are in various states of completeness, and it's hard for me to see past their current state to anticipate where things may go wrong. Right, and it's it's tricky for me as well. Um, to be honest, even from the nonlinear standpoint, um, as evidenced by the the now uh, perennial joke at the company about that one time when I opened <laughs> my mouth and said it would only take a weekend. 
And uh, it is, uh, you are now, by the way, for anyone listening, One String is the project in question that was supposed to take a weekend two years ago. And Bo is now the third developer on that. So we're actually hoping to release it this this uh, quarter, but it's been it's been an absolute nightmare. That's so. I mean, I've learned the hard way how to spot flux because I've slammed headlong into it. But um, I think there's three really major uh, sources that I uh, discuss in the article. Um, the first is that you really the first is time, time itself. You really don't know how long it's going to take to um, complete something because ultimately, like I mentioned, you don't know what the computer is going to understand from your commands. Uh, you don't know how it's going to take it. And you can't just check the computer's understanding against your understanding. Uh, you have to kind of take the backdoor approach and, and, and determine whether or not it understands you based on what it does, which can be very unpredictable as anyone who tries debugging will know um so you don't know how long the whole thing's going to take you could have a, a few moments of um debugging nightmare or you could have months on end so um anytime when you are looking at writing code that you haven't started writing yet you have a bit of flux right there because that code represents an unknown amount of time that has to be put into it you have code that comes from bringing in other people's work other people's libraries and dependencies and classes and objects and uh, that creates uncertainty not only because again it's code yes it's tested but you don't know how it's going to behave with your uh with your code you don't know if there's going to be difficulties getting the two to uh communicate well and you don't know how long it's going to take for you to learn how to use it especially if it's the library has poor documentation or poorly commented or some really strange design choices um, that could take you a lot of time and um, learning a library is not it's it's not transferable um, if developer a learns a library they can do everything they can to prepare developer b to take over the code but developer b cannot pick up on a's knowledge of the library they will have to learn it themselves so you kind of have a case of repeating flux there because you don't know how long that's going to take. And every developer you bring on is going to have to walk that same unknown space of time. So you, you have flux from that. And then the third and perhaps nastiest piece of flux comes from problem complexity. And that has to do, again, with translation. But now it's that we don't know just how far down we have to break something. If you want to arrange uh, 20 people in a room based on height, that's something that's very easy for you to do looking into the room. You, you know, find the shortest person, the next shortest, the next shortest. And because of your human mind's capabilities, you can do that very, very quickly. But a computer actually has a harder time with this task. It's a very complicated task because it has to define the criteria, has to know, okay, what exactly are we measuring by height? Okay, how do we get the height how do we look at more than one individual at once because computers can only hold so much in short-term memory the cache and so it brings in all of these limitations that we ourselves are not aware of with the problem so what may seem like something very trivial for us turns out to be a very complicated task for the computer um and just how deep that rabbit hole goes is anybody's guess until you actually start breaking it down
it's interesting from my standpoint too, even though, you know, I haven't really been here for that long, but I've seen a lot of this stuff happen already. Especially I'm thinking right now your your difficulties with trying to package the mission. <sighs> yes. The pain, the pain. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's a big flux patch that people overlook right there is it's not enough to get the software written, it's not enough to get the software functional. Uh, you actually have to get that onto other people's computers, and that's a project in and of itself. <laughs> yeah, and just seeing you struggle with that, and that some of the resources you've been able to contact to help you out with that has been impressive to me just from a standpoint of, well, you got to understand that things are going to go wrong sometimes, and not even the people at the source of the program you're using really know the answer yet. Right. And I think going back to your question about, you know, how do you limit this stuff? How do you limit how much flux uh, when you don't really even have the project fully defined um, is you kind of have to look at um, how many different spots can have flux, how many different parts of this are unknowns. And that's one of the really handy things about working with uncertainty is that I don't know is actually useful information. Because usually, uh, you know, in day-to-day life, if, if someone says, you know, where do you want to eat for supper? And you say, I don't know, you're at an impasse until somebody says, well, I'd like pizza. Um, but with, with software, you say, I don't know. And that's, that's immediately something useful. Uh, because, you know, okay, this is an area of flux. Uh, how long is it going to take to write this? I don't know. How many hours? anybody's guess how complex the problem who knows could this other solution over here work maybe but then you can start breaking it down and you could say okay uh, for example with Inari right now and the communication protocol that Sergio is working on we've had a lot of back and forth about how do we get these two processes to talk to each other and uh, Nate uh, another one of our developers brought up that uh, there was something called the Google Communication Protocol, which would save us all of the time of developing our own protocol. So that would eliminate some flux because now we don't have to create something. We have that that translation flux. Um, we don't have to create it. It's something that's already there. But it introduces the problem of, okay, we have to learn something new. Does it have good documentation? Looks like it. Let's Let's start going down this road a little bit. And then we realize, oh, uh, this is going to involve linking with a shared library. And I already know from some previous work um, having to manage our build system that anytime we're dealing with linking to a shared library, that's a huge flux patch. That's massive because shared libraries introduce all sorts of additional complexities when it comes to uh, compiling, especially when you're dealing with trying to make it portable across multiple operating systems. And so we, as soon as we figured out, okay, this is a shared library, we realized, okay, Google protocol buffers, possibly a great idea for another project, but we have two flux patches here. We've got the, the fact we have to learn it. And then we have the, the actual process of linking it up versus one flux patch of just developing the protocol using something we already know, sockets. So will it actually be shorter to go that way? We actually can't know. Uh, it could be that those two flux patches together are shorter than the one flux patch or, or flux bridge, as I say in the article, uh, that one flux bridge that we're currently walking down. It could be that we're walking down a bridge that's much longer. But it's really impossible to say unless we walk down both bridges. So 
more often than not, the more flux bridges you have, the longer it's going to take. So you just start limiting how many places are injecting, how many elements are injecting uncertainty into the project. That, that's definitely interesting because I think from my perspective, watching like the details of how these things are morphing and evolving, you know, through weekly meetings and especially with the protocols, I, I look at it, I think it's really hard to see more than five feet ahead of you. Whereas you're looking at all of the alternatives at once, if I'm under, understanding this right. Yes. And I think part of that is part of that is um, the way I think, you know, I'm, I'm looking at things out, you know, 10, 20, 30 years out sometimes. And I'm looking at how do I put the pieces into place so that I can solve puzzles later. I'm not even solving problems that are necessarily out a long ways. I'm just getting lined up so that I can solve them later. And I think that's one of the reasons this works is because you know i knew we wanted to work on rat script for quite some time and three years out from it or almost three years out from it i knew we were going to have to work with uh, unicode in the content engine which meant rat script is going to have to work with unicode which meant we had to have a unicode string class which means somebody has to write one so even though we're not actually solving how to handle the content we're getting a piece lined up in advance to be able to handle the content. That's that's an interesting approach. It also it, your description of time almost sounds like you're in Slaughterhouse Five. He says he's unstuck in time and he he experiences his life at like different time periods and then zooms to like when he's forty from when he was five a second ago. So he's so he's experiencing time in a nonlinear fashion. Yeah, yeah. It can it can be a bit of a trip. Sometimes I have to remind myself what year it is. Actually, and that's one of the weird things, that's one of the weird side effects of this, is that um, I spent the bulk of 2017 writing 2018 is the year, because I knew that we had stalled out, and that it was going to be at least December before we were going to be able to regroup. I, I knew by about August that this was the case, because, you know, after the great academic leave, and then everything started happening again, including my leaving, I knew we weren't going to get anything done that year. Mm -hmm. So I had to start making plans for 2018. And because I was now planning uh, a year out, I was writing the year 2018 every time I had to write down a date. And I, I'd have to erase it for 2017 because I kept getting the year wrong. I got really good at, because I write in ink, I got really good out of making a seven out of an eight. <laughs> Uh, that's actually another interesting question is when you're making these things, obviously you have to set the finish line somewhere, but when you're going to decide that something is done can be a little bit, depending on circumstance, at what point do you make the decision to say, this isn't going to be entirely done the way we want it to, but we're going to put it out anyway? Well, I think a lot of this style has to do with changing your plans on a regular basis. You know, you, you roll with it and, um, I think there was a line from Doctor Who that, that really resonated with me, uh, where at one point the doctor says, just hang on tight and pretend there's a plan. Because there's a lot of times when dealing with this much uncertainty, I don't have one. And it isn't to say I'm not keeping things in mind. It isn't to say that we're just flying by the seat of our pants. But I don't have enough information yet to make a decision. So I will I will defer things to... Okay, I will look at this again in a month. I will look at this again in a week. And then once I reach that point, then look around and reevaluate where we are. I think, uh, to answer your question, I think 
you know a project is going to uh, start becoming a black hole, I think, is is the point at which you know um, you're not going to be able to get anything done unless you refactor something. And um, and sometimes all you have to do is refactor who's available and who's working on what workflows you're using. Sometimes that's all it takes. But I think you start to recognize that something is a black hole when you've gone on a particular path for a week, two weeks, a month, two months, three months, and you're no closer to your goal than you were when you started, uh, you know that there's something wrong with the path you're on. It's You should be getting closer, but you know, you're not. To put that in a more practical sense, if, if you have been writing code for two months and you have nothing pushed into the master branch of the repository, you have a problem. <laughs> at that point you have to go what are we doing wrong it, it's hard to to abandon something you put that much time into i think you can get almost like a like stubborn with your sunk costs like I, I'm, I'm three months in on this now but yeah. i'm going to keep going hoping that there'll be a solution eventually and sunk costs is this whole idea that okay i'm going to get my money's worth or i'm i'm going to get my time's worth in this case out of this i put in all of this and i i need to get something out of it so that i feel like i haven't wasted anything but it's surprisingly difficult for us to recognize when we are literally milking a rock. You know, we're not going to get anything out of it. And uh, putting more time or more money into the very thing that we already know is a lost cause in hopes of getting something out of it is, is really a form of insanity because insanity is doing the same thing, expecting different results. And it's something you have to break yourself of in this field to where you recognize that, okay, uh, this didn't work. Uh, Yeah, I'm throwing away 250,000 lines of code, but those 250,000 lines of code are never going to get me anywhere. It is literally a bridge to nowhere. And uh, I have to cut this loose and um, move on. And um, that's hard to do because we get emotionally invested and it feels like our baby and we really don't want to part with it but sometimes the best thing in the world you can do is nuke the repository and start over and it's not like you didn't get anything out of that too i mean you you learned some lessons you probably can bring some things over from what you did before absolutely absolutely i mean it's uh it it is helpful to to remember that you know for everything we do um we are ultimately learning and when your main focus is on what did I learn from this, then it makes it a lot less painful to have to um, cut code out of a repository and um, remove things because, or even abandon a project because, you know, in the end, you didn't get nothing out of it. You learned something. And that new knowledge is going to better equip you to detect flux in projects and to, um, know a little bit about you know how long that flux bridge is going to be the the comparison you talked about earlier where it's like why why can't we plan this you know why isn't it like building a bridge i think that's kind of at the core of that question to me is like well you know exactly how to build a bridge and what it has to do but just because something's on the computer doesn't mean you know exactly how to build it it's going to offer its own challenges completely separate from anything else that i would say anyone's ever written if it's a unique project Right. And I think part of the thing is the observability. When you're building a bridge, you can see whether it's right. 
you have tools. You can you can measure it. You can use you can use your eyes. You can use your level, and you can you can see scientifically, quantitatively, this is correct. But you can't do that with a computer. You can only observe indirectly. You have to put in the input and then check to see what the output is. You can't actually examine the machine inside the that that black box as much as we like to believe we can. Um, we have to put the pieces into place and close the door before we can drop the marble in. And then where that marble comes out and what it comes out as is sometimes a complete surprise. It's like, why did that turn it into a frog? How did it even do that? Because sure, we can look at the parts and the pieces and the wires, but we can't watch the marble going through it. And that's probably the most infuriating part of the whole thing is that we, we cannot see the machine working. And so we can't really fix it by direct observation. Oh, the, the transmographer is turning the marble into a frog. We can't see that directly. We have to infer that through a process of elimination. It's not this part. It's not this part. It's not this part. Let me strip it down. Just put this little section in. Oh, it comes out as a frog. It must be the trans transmographer. And I think that's where things get really confusing. We've talked a lot about how to minimize flux as far as actual coding goes, but how do you have any tips for trying to deal with life in general? And when people have to step out, how do you keep things running smoothly then? Yeah, life is one of those things that is also very unpredictable. And um, I think what I've taken away from 2017 is that you can't control how much time you don't have. Things are going to happen hurricanes floods academic years new jobs these things just they happen whether we want them to or not and we can't really stop them what we can do is we can put ourselves in a position to make the most use of the time that we have and i think that's ultimately what went wrong in 2017 we historically have been very relaxed about some of our standards having a having documentation, having specifications. And we were trying to make an effort to t tighten that down a bit more. But it was still a bit, um, still a bit lax. And the reason for those things, the reason you need those things is because comments and documentation and specifications, these enable you to acclimate to the code a lot faster after you've been away. You can glance over it, glance at the issues in the list at your spec and go, oh, that's right. I was working on that one bug where, but if you don't have that, then you have to reconstruct what you were thinking about or what the previous developer was thinking about. And that can sometimes take hours, days, or even weeks. And because we're having to do this every single time any one of us came back, um, you have someone who is away for a month, comes back for what what turns out to be two weeks, and they spend almost this entire two weeks just reacclimating to the code. By the time they're reacclimated, they have to leave again. So it's vital to put oneself in a position where you can make the most of the time that you have, whether it be 10 minutes, an hour, or the whole enchilada, you have to be ready to make the most of it. You don't want to have to reacclimate all the time. Well, thanks for talking to me, Jason. It was nice to learn about uh, your headspace when you were trying to plan all this flux. Yeah, thank you. It was, uh, it was fun to discuss it. It's definitely a scary place in my head sometimes. <laughs> and if anybody wants to read the entire article we're talking about, uh, Gallifreyan Software Project Management, uh, that is available on Dev2, and we'll be putting the link to that in the show description. Thank you so much for listening.
Thanks to Jason C. McDonald, Allie Jensen, and Ann McDonald for joining us today. Our music is Outer Orbit and Time Flux by Revolution Void. It was licensed under Creative Commons Attribution 3.0. For this and more great free music, check out the Free Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org. Distribution of this podcast is made possible by the Internet Archive, a non-profit library of millions of free books, movies, software, music, websites, and more. Check them out at archive.org. This podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0. In other words, you're free to download and share. More information at creativecommons.org. The Mouse Podcast is a production of Mousepaw Media, dedicated to creating innovative solutions for education. You can find out more about our company and projects at mousepawmedia.com. This has been Bowen Volweiler, and have a great day.